There in Luke chapter number 12, we will continue and have our sermon today. We're going to be working down from verse number 13 all the way to verse number 34. So let me continue the reading from verse number 22 of Luke 12. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for the body, what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barns, and God feedeth them. How much more better are you than the fowls? And which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If you then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take you thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And seek not... Ye what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that you have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Father, we thank you for your word. May we live our lives in such a way that where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. Not in earthly and temporal things, but in eternal heavenly things. Use your word and the power of your Holy Spirit now to conform us to this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in this portion of chapter number 12, Jesus teaches, Beware of covetousness. Now, chapter 12, we're using as a lesson on dependence as a disciple of Christ. To be a disciple of Christ is to be depending upon God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ all the time for everything. We looked at that much the last time we were together here in chapter 12. Now Jesus moves us over to this teaching on the warnings against covetousness. Covetousness is a strong desire to acquire more and more material possession or to possess more things than other people have. Covetousness exists regardless of one's needs. When I first became pastor here, Brother George Rye, the pastor at that time, sat me down and he said, now brother, this is a good church and they'll always take care of you. He said, but they'll take care of your needs, not your greeds. <laughs> and I said, amen, brother, that sounds biblical, that sounds good. A few years ago, I had a gentleman at my house looking to do some work, and he, he looked around, and he said, you said you're a preacher? And I said, yeah, why? And he said, you got too many toys to be a preacher. And I said, well, I got too many boys to be a preacher, too. So nevertheless, I think covetous is something that I certainly battle, and maybe you do as well. But Jesus gives us good, good instruction here on avoiding the excessive and the immoderate desire of just acquiring more and more and more. You, know, you can just keep going there, can't we? It's Amazon.com. Anybody got any packages coming today? <laughs> they even deliver on Sundays now. It used to not be a thing, but now it is. I know my Amazon drivers better than most people that come around my house. It's UPS, FedEx, and Amazon, but I, you know, you get to know these people. 
It's this always wanting more, regardless of what we need. Phil Riken comments, the covetous heart is never satisfied. And, and Christians aren't to have unsatisfied hearts and unsatisfied minds. We're, we're to be satisfied in God. We're to be satisfied in the power of the Holy Spirit. The blood of Christ, that power we sang about covering our sins, a relationship restored with God should, should satisfy us. I want to read you a lengthy quote from R.C. Sproul as we get into this because I think while we must be careful not to be covetous, I think we could also go the, the wrong direction with this, and many Christians do. He says, Jesus is not talking about the evils of having wealth. Neither is he denying the validity of earning income or possessing worldly goods. What he is warning them against, rather, is covetousness. That attitude of the heart that causes a person to be utterly preoccupied with money. He tells us that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of one's personal possessions. This is a lesson not against material things, but against materialism. Materialism is a worldview which sees the essence of life to be found in the possession of wealth. Now this begins in verses 13, 14, 15 with these brothers. There are brothers disputing an inheritance. And of all people, they come to Jesus and they say, referee this for us. Notice verse 13. And one of the companies said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. You ever been put on the spot like this? Don't you love to be that person? Hey, will you, will you take up this Calls And what they're really asking, is this guy actually wanting Jesus to be fair? No, he's wanting Jesus to be on whose side? His side. He's saying, hey, Jesus, I'm the one who came to you, so I must be right. You talk to him and tell him just how wrong he is. Well, this is outside the sermon on covetousness, but Jesus' reaction and response here is good for you as well. What does he do? Verse 14, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? Now, I think Jesus probably said that in a different tone, but in my southern dialect, I can just hear him in frustration saying, man, <laughs> who made me your referee? And that's what he says here. Man, who made me a judge and divider of you? And then he says in verse 15, take heed, beware of covetousness, for a man's life consistent not in the abundance of things which he possesses. I saw a a sticker on the back of someone's truck and it said something along the lines of the one who dies with the most toys wins. You know, you've seen this. Beware of covetousness. Jesus refuses and instead of refereeing their debate over their father's stuff, these are brothers who should have rather had their dad than the stuff. And they're fussing and fighting over this inheritance. And, and Jesus says, no, I'm not going to referee this fight. But this is what I'll tell you. You both need to be aware of covetousness. This is likely Jesus saying, you've got enough already. You're, you're going to have a hole in your life. Any man who's lived to see his father go realizes that hole that is left there. You'd much rather have dad than the stuff. So Jesus warns them here. And he teaches about temporal securities and then the anxieties that come when we trust in temporal securities. Do you struggle with stress and anxiety? Do you battle depression? Well, this teaching will help you much. Often the 
solution to these things is to be trusting in God and not in the things of this world and for today. Let's begin in verses 16 through 21, considering temporal security. To instruct regarding against covetousness, Jesus tells a parable. And in this parable, we find a farmer who has had, in our terms, a bumper crop. All right, who doesn't know what a bumper crop is? All right, even though I called corn an herb a few years ago, a few weeks ago, I do know what a bumper crop is. It's more than usual. It's an abundance. He wasn't going to have it every year, so he wasn't prepared for it. So he had this abundance and he decided what to do with it. Now we want to remember when Jesus tells parables, is he teaching doctrine? He's not teaching doctrine. He might be teaching about a doctrine, but a parable would be illustrative of a doctrine he's already taught or is getting ready to teach. So we don't take parables and break them down line by line and say, see, these are doctrines in the Bible and this is what Jesus says to do. Like he's going to tell this guy, and we've already read it, you probably shouldn't have built yourself bigger barns. Now, is that Bible doctrine saying nobody should ever build bigger barns? No, of course not. Aren't you glad you got some rice in the cabinet tonight? Or whatever it is that somebody had in a barn at some point, and you've got it now because somebody built a big enough barn to store it and to get it to you. So be careful with parables when you go through the Scripture. Know the context. Know the doctrine leading into it or the doctrine immediately after it and see what Jesus is trying to illustrate through in regards to that doctrine. Let's read again from verse 16. Here's a man who had been blessed abundantly. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. So he had been blessed abundantly. Who blessed him? God's in control, right? He controls the rain. He controls the soil. He can create all this. If you have a good crop, it's on God. If you don't have a good crop, it's God as well. In Elijah's day, the whole world was in a drought and thirsty and hungry. And Elijah said, God told Elijah, you go down there and you tell the people in charge, it's going to stop raining and it's not going to start again until I tell it to. And that was all based on God's will and what he was doing here. So we would not say that it's wrong to be rich and we would not say that it's wrong to have an abundance. That's not the teaching here. The teaching is what led after that. Here's a man with a God-given blessing of abundance. Verse 17, it was so much that he didn't know what to do with it all. Notice the verse. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? A lot of you guys are gun collectors. You run into this problem with your guns. You have a gun safe and you get one more gun and you say, well, it won't fit in the safe. Anybody had this problem before? What's the solution? What's that? Another what? Another safe. Yes. Got to have a bigger safe to hold more guns. Honey? (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. She's been with me in a car for three weeks. She's sick of me at this point. I might as well pile on. Well, this guy, he says, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't have anywhere to put all of this stuff. So in verse 18, he decides to build a bigger barn so that he could store it. Notice that. He said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. Now, Jesus doesn't actually get into the specifics of what this man should have done. And I think probably in a parable form, it's because we can already understand what this man should have done or should not have done. Was there wisdom? Even I'm not a businessman. But was there much wisdom in tearing down these barns? 
they seem to be fine. They seem to be good. And maybe you know more about farming than me. You say, oh, that's, that, was, that was a logical route to make. But it doesn't seem like it was logical. And then if you have an abundance of stuff like this, let's say it was grain or corn, the herb corn. Well, what do you do with an abundance? There's two other things he could have done besides store it that I thought of just on my own. And I'm not a farmer. What was one thing? Share. Okay. And then I was a little more carnal than that. Sell. Both of those and you didn't need new barns. And with the selling it, you would have profit. So even if his motive was, I'm going to build bigger barns to store this up. And he goes on to say, so that I can eat, drink, and be merry. Well, if you sold it, couldn't he have done basically the same? And now their climate in that day was a little different as far as like there wasn't a Walmart down the street or a Chapel CB store to go get something from tonight if you ran out. So storing up food was a, was a big thing. But this guy's solution was to build these bigger barns. His motivation is where we find Jesus pointing out the wrong. Verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Is there anything wrong with eating, drinking, and being merry? No, you still celebrate and do all these things. The problem is where he comforts his soul because of what? What does verse 19 tell us? Because he has what? Much goods. See, this is the, the rule of covetousness. He who has the most toys wins. I'll say to my soul, I'll build these bigger barns. I'll lay aside this abundance. And then I'll be able to eat, drink, and be merry, and my soul be put at ease because I have all of these things. Now, you could think of a lot of obstacles to his plan there, but just humanly speaking, it's not a bad plan except for this one thing, and that thing is death. Because God says to him in verse 20, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man had laid up much for now, but he had laid up nothing beyond the grave. We have been fooled in the modern world, by the way, of being convinced that legacy is earthly, uh, utterly important. Well, I would say to you that legacy is only earthly important. What's more important than legacy is heavenly investment. Eternal investment. Living for the next life and not this life. Many would take a verse like this and say, see, he left nothing but beyond the grave. And there are some Proverbs that say, like a wise man leaves an inheritance to his children and his children's children. I think that's all, all fine and well and good. I'm not encouraging you not to do that. What I'm encouraging you not to do is take hope in that. To put your trust in that. Your hope and your trust as a dependent disciple of Christ is that you serve an eternal God who has eternal blessings for those who have eternal life. God calls this man a fool. Someone has defined a fool as one whose plans end at the grave. I think that is awfully foolish. God taught him that he actually owned nothing at all. The minute this man's life ended, what did he own? None of it was his anymore. Now think of what this means to these two brothers that started this conversation. Jesus Will you tell my brother that I'm right and he's wrong? Jesus says, you both need to beware of covetousness. Let me tell you a story. 
And to both of these brothers, the story rings true. When you're as dead as your father is, you won't own anything anyways. Now what is the disciple to glean from that? You're saved this morning. You're a disciple of Christ, baptized into His church. What are you to glean from this? That we don't own anything. He owns it all. And you and I are simply His blessed overseers over everything that He owns. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. That God calls this man a fool. God tells this man, you don't own anything at all. All that he had, including his life, could be called in at any moment. And then Jesus ends with a statement on temporal security there in verse 21, when you're not rich toward God. And I think that leads us to consider, well, how am I to be rich toward God? If I could help you this morning, I think that would be a good question to answer. Because Jesus said, when you're not rich towards God, you're foolish. When you lay up treasure for yourself, you're not being rich toward God. Well, how should I be rich toward God? Well, I think one way to be rich toward God is to build bigger barns, but in a different way. Ambrose, church father, he was the bishop of Milan. He said this, the bosoms of the poor... The houses of widows, the mouths of children are the barns which last forever. I think we could build bigger barns that hold generosity. So on those times of bumper crops or in every preacher's dream, bumper offerings. We're readily available to help those who need this kind of help. Jesus is not promoting self-imposed poverty here. In fact, I think the lesson in this instance is the more that any one of us have, the more that we could give. So how can we be rich toward God? Build bigger barns. The overarching point seems to be here. Don't only think of in terms of the temporal. Often we think about today or tomorrow or just in my lifetime. I read recently that people who actually change the world are people who aren't afraid to do things that they'll never see the fruits of in their lifetime. I think there's some truth to that. Temporal security does have a large flaw. You, could, you can have your bank account squared away. You can have your medical stuff all squared away. Even if you've got some issues, you know, you've got your doctors, you've got your medicine, have all that squared away. Your family squared away. Your career squared away. Your civic duties all squared away. Yard mowed and edged just right. But there's still just this one flaw. Death. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And I don't want to be gloomy here this morning. It's a beautiful summer day. We actually got some rain last night. I don't necessarily have death on my mind, but, but it, it's an appointment we must keep. So what are we to do? We're to get our minds off the temporal things and we're to work on being rich toward God. Building up eternal treasure. Building bigger barns, but to a different end. The end of generosity. This begins by acknowledging that everything we have comes from God. Can you do that this morning? Can you within yourself simply sit here and say, everything I have comes from God. If you're rich this morning, it's going to be hard for you to acknowledge that unless you've already crossed this bridge.
Because you feel like, well, I worked hard. I put in some time. I put in some effort. I put in some energy to, to earning these riches. But God gave you that time and God gave you that energy and God gave you the smarts to do it. Oh, if you're smart here this morning. I don't know what that's like, but some of you are very, very smart. You tell me about it. Oh, no, that's the smart Alex. I meant book smart. Some of you are book smart. Common sense smart. Can you trust that to God? Can you say, you know, actually, the very brain that I have comes from God. Some of you have the best family around. You've got the family relationship that everybody else envies. Can you trust that to God? You may have a great career, a great job. Can you trust that to God? You may have great health. People may say to you, you're how old? I can't believe you're that old. You don't look that old. You may say, well, I can't believe I've got such good health at this time of my life. Can you trust that to God? We must acknowledge, if we want to be rich toward God, we must acknowledge that everything that we have comes from God. And we must do this with a grateful heart. Lord, my wealth comes from you and I'm thankful for it. Lord, my health comes from you and I'm thankful for it. Now with that, you know, with the sunshine comes a little rain. With that comes, you may have poor health right now. If you believe that the days of good health comes from God, well, where did the bad health come from? The devil? That's often how we play things, isn't it? If I'm rich, it's from God. If I'm poor, it's from the devil. <laughs> Job would be your proof text against that, wouldn't it? And what did Job say? I mean, right after he lost everything. This man got on his face before God and he said, God, you've given and you've taken away and I bless your holy name. Can you acknowledge this morning that everything you have comes from God? Your very life, your children, your grandchildren, the clothes on your back, the food in your belly. Everything you have comes from God. Well, if everything you have comes from God and God decides I want to use it in a different way, who are we to, to hoard it? Who are we to be covetous with it? You know, it would solve our covetous nature if we realized that we're all one big family and everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine and our Father owns it all and we're just sharing in these things and we go on like that. Now, some of you politically just thought to yourself, now, hang on a minute, that sounds socialistic, communistic, utopian. I don't know about all this. And some of you who didn't think politically there, you just thought, I don't want you up in my space for my stuff. We must acknowledge if we want to be rich toward God, if we don't want death to be the end, it's all His. And then, if we can acknowledge that everything comes from God, then we must use what He gives for His glory. Usually what this means is we use what God has blessed us with for the good of other people. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy it ourselves, but the primary use of if I'm rich, I acknowledge that comes from God. I'm grateful that he has made me rich and I look for opportunities to use my riches for the good of other people because I assume for God's glory, this is why he has made me rich. If I am smart, if I'm good at something, and on and on and on it goes. Can I acknowledge that it comes from God? Can I use it day in and day out for God's 
glory. I don't know if you've seen uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, these, these types of movies. I think they've been out long enough that I won't be ruining it, ruining it for anybody. If you haven't seen it, you can plug your ears. But there's this character on there named Gollum. We got any Gollums in here this morning? What does he say, Parker? You're not going to do it? Okay. You want to do it? Stand up in your chair and do Gollum for everybody. Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> What's the word he always says? Who knows? Precious. My precious. <laughs> Preston Parker's going to hate that he's not here this morning. He loves the movies. But Gollum had found the ring. You know, the, to control it all, the ring of power. It wrecked his life. He spent all of his time hiding it from other people. Keeping somebody from taking it from him. Everybody became an enemy. Everybody got around him. You're trying to steal my precious. This is mine. I got it, not you. You can't have it. When we're covetous, this is what we do. They're going to break my stuff. They're going to use up my stuff. I'm going to confess personally here. I'm covetous with my gas. <laughs> Unleaded gas. Jack has gotten old enough to drive and, and Jack's a little covetous with his gas and his money. And he says, Dad, can I drive your car? And what's the rule, Jack? Yeah, I can't even remember the rule. Hey, Redondo's knows the rule because Jack drives her car. Put the gas back in it before you bring it back. If it left on three quarters of a tank, bring it back on three quarters of a tank. Can I get a witness? I'll use up all my gas, man. Oh, it's the Lord's gas. I've had it this week. I'm not going to have any gas left. He's going to be going all over Tarnation. Now, that's a simple, silly illustration, but it's kind of how we live life. I've literally had people say to me, I'm a preacher. They say, you know why I don't come to church? I think I know, but I'm not going to tell them. But here's their answer. Because all you want from me is my money. I ain't coming down there so y'all can beg me for my money. Anybody here feel like I begged you for money this morning? Maybe we should take up an offering. We got the plates somewhere. Let's take up one. Now the world, no, I'm just kidding. Now churches operate with money and we need money. We depend upon your offerings. But something that impressed me about Harpeth Baptist Church from day one, the first Sunday I was here, we joined the church that Sunday morning. It was a good day. You guys weren't expecting us and we showed up for church. And Brother Rice said, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here until next week. And I said, well, I came a week early because I really like this church and I want to join it before I'm the preacher. And he said, well, you're preaching this morning. And I said, well, you ruined it. <laughs> and came back that night. And I just kind of stepped into the role. And I got ready to take up an offering. And somebody, probably Brother Homer or somebody, said, we don't take up an offering on Sunday nights. And I said, man, I like that. If you've been around Baptist churches, you ain't had church till you've done what, Brother Scotty? Sunday night, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Sunday schools. We even received offerings where I was. I kind of liked it. They're just out there. You put your money in. I think, is it one of those give a penny, take a penny? You need a little out of there? Take it. No, that's not how it works. The treasurer just said, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> we use your money, but that's not the main thing I want. I want to feed you the word. We, we get upset. We get worried. Somebody's going to take our precious. Well, how about you just say my precious belongs to the Lord? Adults, one of the number one things in your life in this regard would be your children and grandchildren. Are you holding them back from ministry? 
Are you holding them back from being generous themselves? Are you so worried about their health and well-being that you can't let them live life? Are they your precious? Are you using what God has blessed you with for His glory? When my fourth son was born, God used a Catholic lady to, to drive home a very important point to me. She said, when I first met you, you had two boys. And then you had a third. And now you got a fourth. And she said, I thought when you had two boys, well, praise the Lord, this would be a nice family to raise two boys that would be good citizens in our country. And I said, well, I'm thinking to myself, I hope. <laughs> and then she said, but now that the Lord has given you four, it's no doubt in my mind that he means for you to raise these boys right so they'll be helpful to our country. And I said, that's a lot of pressure. That's a mighty task that I have before me. Parents, are we using what God has given us for his glory? And don't forget that often means simply for the good of other people. Someone said you enjoy your wealth by employing your wealth. Maybe you're wealthy in money. Maybe you're wealthy in things. Maybe you're wealthy in time. Maybe you're wealthy in people. How are you employing your wealth? If you're not employing your wealth, you're probably not enjoying your wealth. So what did God give you? Did he give you a blessing or did he give you a burden? Are you sitting around at night thinking, what am I going to do with all this abundance? I guess I'll have to tear down my barns and build some more. Look at verse 33. Jesus said, sell what you have and give alms. Provide for yourselves. So if you sell what you have and give alms, what are you doing? You are providing for yourselves bags which wax not old. Now, if you know the scriptures, you know that in the end of the Old Testament, Malachi says, when we rob God, what are our bags like? They're holy. Not H-O-L-Y, but bags with holes in them. H-O-L-E. Jesus is carrying over on that principle here. He says, you want bags that wax not old? Do you want treasure in the heaven that will never fail? Where thief can never take and moth can never corrupt? Then sell what you have and give alms. Now this is all a cross-reference to Matthew 6. And Matthew 6.33 is one of my life verses. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's how I live my life, or try to. But Matthew 6, 19, 20, and 21 is the, the parallel to our text this morning. Let me read those to you. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So Jesus addresses in this parable form temporal security. Next, he's going to get into dealing with daily anxieties. Because one of the issues in temporal security is the daily anxiety that comes along with this. If my trust is not eternal, then I must have the things day to day that I'm actually trusting in. So if one of the things that I'm daily trusting is, is running water in my house, but then I've forgotten left to sink on and I have a $500 water bill and now I don't know if I can pay the bill so they may turn off my water. I'm going to be filled with anxieties. But if these things are secondary to me and the primary things are heavenly, then there's nothing in the day-to-day -day life that can stress me or bring me anxiety 
because my hope is built on things eternal. It's a good old song, by the way. Hold to God's unchanging hand. Life is filled with swift transitions. Hold to God's unchanging hand. Build your hope on things eternal. Hold to God's unchanging hand. So Jesus begins here with a command not to worry. Verse 22. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for the body, what you shall put on. Now this is an easy verse to preach to Baptists in the South at about 10 minutes till the time of dismissal on a Sunday morning. Because what are you thinking about? What are we going to eat? Thomas came to me after Sunday school. I don't know what Miss Wiggins preached on in Sunday school this morning, but Thomas came to me right after class and he said, Dad, what are we having for lunch today? I said, I don't think there's a plan. If you've got something in mind, you better go put a bug in your mama's ear now. Probably not that literally, but Jesus is saying, why are you worried about what you're going to eat? Why are you worried about the clothes you're going to put on? Why are you worried about where you're going to sleep? The life is more than this. The body is more than this. Corey Ten Boom said, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Isn't that great? Jesus said here, can you worry and add one minute to your life? He uses food and clothing as our two most pressing worries. Likely in today's modern world, we don't consider those as our two most pressing worries. But I promise you, if you didn't think you were going to have one or the other, if you thought you were going to have to go hungry or naked, you'd be worried about it. Amen? I'd be worried about it if I thought you were going to have to go hungry or naked. He instructs that life is so much more than this. The life is more than meat and the body is more than raiment. Verse 23 says, Sproul notes here, if we think food or clothing are the essence of life, we have missed the kingdom of God. And that is the clue to what Jesus is talking about here because he finished this section on temporal anxieties talking about God's kingdom. What is our role as dependent disciples who make up the church? It is to be preparing the world for the kingdom of God. The king is coming, and with the king will come his kingdom. Well, what are we to be doing then? Well, kingdom work. There's more to life than waiting around for the next meal. The body is meant for more than simply a mannequin to dress up and put on display. Don't make food and clothing your reason for living. Don't treat these things as ends in themselves, but only as a means to the higher end of living for God. I've got to eat so that I have energy, so that I can do what it is God wants me to do. I've got to work so that I have money to buy the food and to buy the clothes so that I can dress and have the energy to do the things God wants me to do. There's a difference in perspective there. We are to let God, though, take care of the essentials because if we're doing the kingdom work He's called us to do, why would He not take care of the essentials for us so that we could do the kingdom work? Can you imagine calling someone to come over to your house and do some work and you said, but don't worry about it, I have everything you need. And then they get there and you had nothing they need and you said, well, go for it. Fix it up. Do the project. Well, I need some tools. I need some resources. Why would you not provide it for them? You'd never get the work done. Surely God is the same way or more. Do you think that worry is part of God's menu for living? No. 
He doesn't intend us to live stressed, anxious, and worried. He intends us to trust him for the temporal things while we live doing the eternal things. We are to let him take care of these essentials. Let the Holy Spirit lead you and your decision-making processes. Trust him to lead you in meaningful life. Butler says, trust eases worry out of your life. You want to ease some worry out of your life this morning? Start trusting. There's a good little song for that too. I've got good little songs for nearly everything. I just keep trusting my Lord as I walk along. I just keep trusting my Lord and He gives a song. Though dark clouds, though storm clouds darken the sky along the heavenly trail, I just keep trusting my Lord he will never fail. Y'all know that song? He's a faithful friend. All right, you didn't know enough to do the repeat. It's kind of like row, row, row your boat. You got to row your boat too, or the song doesn't keep going. Yeah, that's the one. Thanks, Ruth. You want to ease some worry out of your life? Trust the Lord. Jesus illustrates what this should look like with flowers and birds. Don't you just love flowers and birds? They're beautiful and they're pleasant. Now, birds are not pleasant when they nest outside of your roof and sing all night long. That's kind of annoying, but you can fix that. But read verse 24 with me. It says, consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. Now, that's always been funny to me. Even as a kid in church, and they'd read this verse, I'd think to myself, can you imagine a bird with his straw hat on, some straw coming out of his mouth, and he's out there with his tools and he's doing work? No, of course not. Well, that's what Jesus says here. Consider the ravens. They don't sow, they don't reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn. God feedeth them. How much more are you better than the fowls? Who's doing kingdom work? You are the ravens. Now, a raven has done some kingdom work when God called upon him to do it. Elijah needed to be fed down by the brook and the raven did it. But mostly it's us. Verse 25 which of you taking thought can add stature to his stature one cubit? So two ways to think of that. Can you think yourself just one little bit taller? Can you kind of wish that? I remember as a boy, I, I got up to about six foot and I wanted to be six one. My covetous spirit didn't want to be how tall? Six two. And then I got to six two, I wanted to be six three. Got to six four, I wanted to be six five. I got to about six four and a half and I started wearing two pairs of socks. <laughs> Now I'm 6'5". And I'd go to basketball tournaments and they would denounce me. At, starting at center, number 50, six foot five, Chance Strickland. They never got the chance right because it didn't have the E on there. One place called me Chano. <laughs> so this became one of my nicknames. Chano, where's old Chano at? We can't add one cubit to our stature. Probably a more practical way to think of that is, can you by worry add one minute to your life? Now, I've already established that you have an appointment to die, but let's take this just given modern health care. What are you probably actually doing with worry to the length of your life? Probably taking some minutes off. You're at least, those aren't being fruitful or helpful minutes. Verse 26, if you then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take you thought for the rest? Well, that's so helpful, isn't it? Jesus says, look, quit, quit worrying about everything. 
Quit letting temporal anxieties rule your life. Just do what God's called you to do. Well, what has God called me to do? Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature. If you don't know anything else that God wants you to do today, He wants you to tell somebody else that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You don't have to die and go to hell. Here's how I got saved, and you can be saved too. You can do that. But if you're worried about the water bill and where you're going to get groceries from and are the kids going to get hurt and am I going to lose my job? Well, all of those things are going to keep you from telling somebody else about this man named Jesus who changed your life. In fact, with all of those worries and you come to me talking about Jesus changing your life, I'm going to say, I don't want that life. That's why the prosperity gospel is so easy to peddle. Verse 27 then, he goes to flowers. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. Yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. I'll just make this one up. I didn't have this on my mind as a kid. But just like the bird with the straw hat on, can you imagine a flower doing its makeup in the mirror? I see that every day of my life. Aww. But, but just think about a lily. Out in the middle of a field, spinning and toiling. What does that mean? Well, getting the eyeshadow on and fixing its face up and saying, don't look at me, I don't have this on just yet. They don't do this. And what's Jesus' point? That the, the most glorious kingdom and the king of that kingdom that ever was on the face of the earth yet was not arrayed like just one of these flowers. Well, how the flowers get this way? God did it. He took care of it and He made them this way. Verse 28. If God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? Now he takes something so simple, but he attaches this great conviction on the end of it, doesn't he? O ye of little faith. It's tough. So he illustrates with the birds and the flowers. How the temporal anxieties or temporal security will lead to daily anxieties in our lives. But how that trust will ease doubt out of our lives. And then I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't deny we need these things. In fact, he doesn't even deny that we want some things in life. Verse 29 and seek ye not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nation of the world seek after. And here's a comforting verse. This is one of those underlined phrases in your Bible. Your Father knoweth that you have need of these things. Isn't that a blessing? God knows what you need. He's aware. He knows your name. He knows your address. He probably knows your Amazon driver. Someone said to me recently, every time I hang out with you, things just seem to go well. It must be because you're a preacher. And I said, no, I, just, I don't hang out with you when things are going bad is what it is. But if you think about that, shouldn't that be the world's opinion of all of us Christians? Shouldn't we see God's favor smiling on us all the time? And I know you could sit here and think, but yeah, but what about when we get sick? What about when somebody gets cancer? What about when somebody's house burns down? Yeah, I get all of that. But even in those times, look at how the glory of the Lord can shine through. Your, your house, my house burned down as a kid. We didn't go without one bit. In fact, we, we had an abundance immediately. Like, it burned down on a Wednesday night. Wednesday night, we went to the church because the church had an open parsonage. 
they built the preacher a new house next to that. And they were going to use the parsonage for something else, but it hadn't been done yet. So we just moved into that. And the, the gym, by the next evening, was packed. A basketball court packed with all of this stuff people had brought to our family because they said, well, you got nothing now. Now we couldn't use a third of that. We couldn't use a tenth of that stuff. But we took everything we could use. We put it off to the side. We had a sale for the rest, which gave mom and dad some money. And the glory of the Lord shined through for the in the goodness of his people to a family in need. So you could even say in those times, what about if somebody gets cancer? What if somebody's house burns down? Even in then, the world should look upon Christians and say, boy, they just seem to have favor. Don't we have favor? Aren't we greatly blessed and highly favored? But I wonder, do we act this way? Do we present this way? Do we show this off to the world around us? Are we rich toward God? Are we just too busy being rich toward ourselves so we can't be rich toward God? God knows what we have and He knows what we need. McDonald writes here, we waste our lives doing what God would have done for us if only we devoted our time and talents more to Him. Man, I don't want to do that, do you? I don't want to waste my life doing things that God would have done for me anyways when I could be doing something else. So temporal securities lead to daily anxieties. The solution to this is 31, 32, 33. Be living for an eternal kingdom. What should we be filling our time with? Verse 31, but rather seek the kingdom of God and all these things should be added unto you. When the church is doing what God intends, kingdom work, God will see that we are clothed and God will see that we are fed. David said, I have been young and now I am an old. And I'm not seeing the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Praise the Lord for that. So be part of God's kingdom and do the work that he gives you to do as part of the kingdom. Concentrate on being God's instruments to establish his kingdom here on earth. And as he provided for the mission to those he just sent out in the gospel of Luke. Remember, he sent out 12 and then he sent out 70 something disciples. He provided for them all the way. He said, here's what you need to take. The rest I'll provide for you. I'm even going to give you the power that you're going to need. And both times they came back rejoicing at how well God had provided for them and how he had blessed the work that he had sent them to do. Why would he do any different with us? Surrender to him. You're going to have to surrender your fear. You're not going to take a step of faith toward this end because it's a fearful thing to do. Don't let anxiety rule your life. Trust in the Father. Verse 32, then he says that every kingdom work should come to us without worry. Fear not, little flock. It's phrased in a very comforting way, isn't it? Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now put that together, 31 and 32. 31 said what? If you're doing kingdom work, God's going to take care of the things he knows you need. And then what does he say in 32? And you little sheep, don't even be worried about that because he's going to take great pleasure in even giving you the kingdom. The thing that you're supposed to be working for. He's going to take pleasure in even giving you that. Where do we mess it up as humans? We back up three steps and we say, well, I got to eat. I got to put clothes on the kids' backs. Jesus says, God knows you need those things. Just do kingdom work. And he said, and don't even be anxious there because God takes great pleasure 
and given you the kingdom. Wow. Verse 33 then, lay up treasure in heaven. Sell that you have, give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old. A treasure in the heavens that fails not, where no thief approaches nor moth corrupted. Isn't that the worst? You put away some clothes for the winter, you get them out that next summer, and your best Bermuda shorts have gotten bugs in them and they ate holes in them. Man, awful. What if you gave me a suit jacket a while back? I was so proud of that thing. It was nice. Cost more than anything I'd ever buy for myself. I was so happy to have it. You asked me two or three weeks later, did that coat fit? You haven't worn it. And I said, I had it on, strutting around the house with it. You got to put this in context here. T-shirt, sweatpants, dad socks, and a suit coat. And one of my kids said, Dad, there's a hole in the back of that coat. I said, ah, a moth. So then it went into, I bet Aunt Redonna could fix this. <laughs> no, couldn't be done. When we lay up treasures in heaven, rust will never break it. Moths will never eat it. The IRS will never take it. And death won't be the end of it. We'll be rich toward God. Praise the Lord. Verse 34. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let, let your treasure be in the kingdom of God instead of in the temporal life. This is how you guard against covetousness. Jesus said to these brothers, feuding over their inheritance, referee, and Jesus said, no, here's what you need. You need to be aware of your covetousness. You want more and more and more, and that can never be satisfied. But if you'll be rich toward God and you'll live toward eternal things, working and building His kingdom, He'll take care of all of those things and you won't have to work, want for anything. You will have to work for some things, but you won't have to want for anything. The other option is to be dependent upon temporal security and to be plagued by daily anxieties. Those are the choices Christ has laid out really clear for us here. It's an easy choice, isn't it? McDonald writes here, he says, if we send our money on ahead, then our affections will be weaned from the perishing things of this world. It's not wrong for us to have things, but it's wrong for us to let things have us. Are you living dependent as a disciple of Christ should be? You must beware of covetousness. Often things in life can be warning signs for us. For those in the beginning of this text, it was this conflict over an inheritance. I think that's his warning sign for us, isn't it? You worried about brother or sister and what they're going to get when mom and daddy die? And what you might not get? It's covetousness. What is it for you? Maybe it's not an inheritance. Maybe it's something else. Something to do with a job, something to do with a career, something to do with plans in life, something to do with stuff and toys and all of these things. What is it for you? What is your warning sign? Beware of covetousness. Let's stand and pray.